We've now finished the first day of sitting, and you've probably seen reruns of Christmas shopping, you know, and Christmas driving, and the aches or tension that are carried in your body, or the things that fill your mind, or the doubt, like, what am I doing here, and why am I doing this again? If it's another, I mean, I should have learned last time. Or if you're new, how did I get into this and how do I get out of it? So it's useful on the first night's talk to be reminded in some way of the purpose of our practice together. The Buddha said in a number of, on a number of occasions, just as the great oceans, the four great oceans, have but one taste, the taste of salt, so too all of the teachings of the Dharma, all of the practices of the Dharma, have but one taste, the freedom of the heart and spirit. So tonight I'd like to talk about that and how that is found as the basis for Buddhist psychology. But let me begin with a story. This is from the, a story from one of the many, many tales told by the Persian poet Rumi. There was a merchant setting out for India. He asked each male and female employed in his household what they wanted to be brought as a gift. Each told him a different exotic object, a bolt of silk, a silver figurine, a pearl necklace. Finally, he asked his beautiful caged parrot, the one with such a lovely voice. And she said, when you see the Indian parrots, describe my cage. Say that I need guidance here in my separation from them. Ask how our friendship could continue with me so confined and them flying in the meadow mist. Tell them I remember our mornings moving from tree to tree. Tell them to drink a cup of ecstatic wine to honor me here in the cage of my life. Tell them that any quarreling in the trees would be sweeter than the music of my cage. You know this parrot, don't you? This parrot is the spirit bird in all of us that part that wants to return to freedom, that is the freedom. What she wants from India is herself. Part one. So the story will continue in a bit. The roots of Buddhist psychology are laid out in this story. The whole of the teaching of Buddhist psychology is that which creates bondage, suffering, entanglement in life, and that which leads to freedom. So that in studying Buddhist psychology, we study ourselves, and we see directly the nature and strategies of consciousness, the ways that we hide from things that we don't like to look at, for example, the fact of death, Alan Watts described us as people, like people who are winding their watch on the way to the gallows. 
the conditioned responses of our life, the self-structures that we live within, the cages that we make for ourselves, seeing all of those strategies, and then awakening to see beyond this small sense of self. Buddhist psychology at its roots begins to talk about the power of habits, inner habits, social habits, conditioning, that congeal in our life, where we lose flexibility. I mean, here we saw it today. You were given the simplest task. Just be aware of your life breath, of your breathing. What could be easier, right? Did your mind stay? A little bit, in certain cases, more or less. But then it would go off and wander and imagine and fill with all kinds of things, or be sleepy or dull or restless or bored. The breath is boring. That's what one student complained to their Zen master. He grabbed them by the nape of the neck. Yes, Rodney. <laughs> and thrust the student under the water, held him there under the river by the side of the monastery, struggling to get out. And finally, after a long time, let him come up and said, was your breath boring then? <laughs> when you have that kind of interest, he said, then your practice might get somewhere. So we see, even in a day, the power of our habits to get lost, to wander, the kind of conditioning. The roots of Buddhist psychology start by describing the world of our experience, the raw materials of our world. There are the six sense doors and their objects, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, physical perceptions, and then perceptions through the mind of feelings and images and thoughts, those six senses. And then for each of them there arises a consciousness that knows or receives that sense. So there's eye consciousness, ear consciousness, nose, tongue consciousness, body consciousness, mind consciousness that quality of being that knows or perceives in a moment. Anybody have anything more in their world than that? Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, feeling, sensing through the mind? Those are the, the basic palette or colors, textures of our life. Now there's one other thing in Buddhist psychology to mention that's particularly important in laying it out. There are the six sense experiences, sight, sounds, taste, and smells, the knowing of them, eye consciousness, ear consciousness, and so forth. Between those, between the sights and sounds and smells and thoughts and so forth, and the knowing of them, there is an array of qualities of mind which arise that are called mental factors. And in the Theravada tradition, there are 52 of them. 52 different qualities that determine our relationship to the experience of life. 
Some of them are common, they arise all the time. The quality of recognition, memory, kind of knowing what's there, perception. The quality of will or energy in every moment, there's some measure of that. The quality of steadiness, the quality of feeling, in every moment there's some feeling tone. But most of these mental qualities that arise with each moment of seeing and hearing and sensing our world will arise together with either unskillful states or skillful ones. The unskillful states, the roots of them, are greed and grasping, hatred and aversion, and delusion. Greed, hatred, and delusion being caught up or identified. And based on greed and hatred and delusion in the moment of experience of tasting or seeing or meeting life, there then arise attachment, restlessness, jealousy, conceit, worry, doubt, fear, duplicity, shamelessness. These states of grasping or resisting become a source of contraction and entanglement for us. You've probably noticed that in your life already, and certainly even today it may be apparent. Those moments of experience where there's aversion or grasping, then there arises worry, fear, doubt, restlessness, all those other things. A whole opposite set of states can also arise in experience. We can taste or see or feel something, and instead of greed, there can arise a kind of openness and receptivity instead of grasping. Instead of hatred, there can arise loving-kindness. Instead of delusion, there can come clarity or wisdom. And based on that, in that moment of experience, then there arises all these other what are called skillful mental factors. Joy, integrity, pliancy or malleability of mind, adaptability, lightness, equanimity, confidence, goodwill, lovely qualities. Spiritual awakening in this particular model or formulation of practice is to sense the possibilities within our life in any moment, the possibilities of this openness, and then to offer training that allows us to step out of or go beyond or transform the entanglements of greed and fear and jealousy and hatred and delusion into those which are the opposites. The forces of grasping and hatred and delusion, the forces that are habits in us, arise from fear. If you pay attention, you'll notice that. And they create a small sense of self. They come out of a small sense of self, a fixed sense of self that is sometimes described as the body of fear. And out of that we defend ourselves and grasp and get jealous and afraid and, and push things away. For some of us it's the fear of loss or the fear of death. For others of us it's the fear of life of touching life directly. But what is life? Life comes to us 
as sights and sounds and smells and tastes and perceptions of body and mind. So why be afraid? What's the fear? As we look in, we can see fear of loss, fear of change. And it, at its root, in each moment, there arises with each moment of our experience a certain feeling tone every moment. Sometimes the feelings are pleasant, pleasant sights or sounds or smells and tastes and so forth. Sometimes the feelings are unpleasant, painful. Sometimes the feelings are neutral, neither pleasant nor unpleasant. But every moment has feeling. And they grab us or kick us or, or somehow catch us up. You may have noticed that. And our small self, our personality, becomes constructed out of our response to pleasure and pain and neutral and pain and pleasure and pleasure and pain and neutral and painful and pleasant and pleasant and unpleasant and neutral. Our response to these can be fear, aversion, desire, wanting something, not wanting something else. To avoid insecurity or avoid pain. Anybody succeed in doing that? Raise your hand. Like to meet the person. But we have these habits. Instead of contracting in these habitual ways, there is an alternative. A friend of mine, a physician who uses meditation and art and other spiritual practices for the healing of cancer patients, tells a story that illustrates the possibility of the healing heart. She describes a young man who was 24 years old when he came to see her after one of his legs was amputated at the hip to save his life from bone cancer. When she began to work with him, he had a great sense of injustice and a hatred for all the healthy people. It seemed bitterly unfair to him that he had suffered this terrible loss so early in his life. His grief and rage was so great that it took several years of continuous work for him to become out, begin to come out of himself and to heal. He had to heal not simply his body, but also his broken heart and his wounded spirit. He worked deeply, telling his story, painting it, meditating, bringing his entire life into awareness. And as he slowly healed, he developed compassion for others in similar situations. He began to visit people in the hospital who had suffered severe physical losses. On one occasion, he told his doctor, he visited a young singer who was so depressed about the loss of her breast, she wouldn't even look at him. The nurses had the radio playing, probably hoping to cheer her up. It was a hot day, and the young man had come to visit her in running shorts. Finally, desperate to get her attention, he unstrapped his artificial leg and began dancing around the room on one leg, snapping his fingers to the music. She looked up in amazement and finally burst out laughing and said, Man, if you can dance, I can sing. When this young man first began to work with drawing, he made a sketch of his own body with crayons in the form of a vase with a deep black 
crack running across it. And he redrew the crack over and over, gritting his teeth with rage. Some years later, to encourage him to complete the process, the doctor, my friend, showed him this early picture. He saw it and he said, oh, this one isn't finished yet. And when she said, well, you can finish it if you like, he ran his finger across the crack and said, you see here, this is where the light comes through. And he took a yellow crayon and drew light streaming from the crack in the broken vase and said, our hearts can grow strong in the broken places. So there is a possibility instead of contracting around the pain of the world, that we meet it in a different way, not getting rid of it, but touching it with a heart of compassion, with the healing heart of a Buddha, the spirit that makes the Dalai Lama so wonderful and endearing when he talks about even the Chinese communists who have in many ways destroyed Tibet and calling them, my friends, the enemy. As we sit, we can see the unskillful strategies that come out of our fear or our woundedness, our habits and delusion. We call these our personalities in general. And in Buddhist psychology, personalities are initially organized around fear. There are the greed types. That is the personality structured around grasping more. If only I had this. I have to get this and that and fill myself up and get more pleasure and then I'll be safe or full or okay. And the society, of course, reinforces that, doesn't it? Get more toys. Here's an application a young man wrote to get into college, you know, where they ask you in admissions, is there anything that you've done that would, should make us you know, want to take you or take you seriously? And he wrote, I'm a dynamic figure often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I've been known to remodel train stations on my lunch breaks, making them more efficient in heat retention. I translate ethnic slurs for Cuban refugees. I write award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. Occasionally, I tread water for three days in a row. I woo women with my sensuous and godlike trombone playing. I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed, and I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. <laughs> I'm an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. I once single-handedly defended a village in the Amazon from ferocious ants. I play bluegrass cello. I was scouted by the Mets. When I'm bored, I build large suspension bridges in my yard. <laughs> On Wednesdays after school, I repair electric appliances free of charge. I'm an abstract artist, a concrete analyst, and a ruthless bookie. Critics worldwide swoon over my line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. <laughs> I bat 400. My floral arrangements have won me international fame. Children trust me. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish an entire house that evening. I know the exact location of every food item in the supermarket. 
I perform covert operations for the CIA. I sleep once a week. When I do, I sleep in a chair. The laws of physics do not apply to me. I've made extraordinary fourth course meals using only a toaster oven. I've won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I've played Hamlet. I've performed open heart surgery, and I've spoken with Elvis. But I have not yet gone to college. <laughs> he got in. <laughs> so that's one strategy. Do it, get it, be that. I mean, that's, that's it. He's sort of playing out the extreme of it. And we create a whole life based on becoming and ambition and grabbing. Or the opposite strategy of hatred, hating, aversion, judging, critical, not liking, seeing what's wrong. You know, the, the optimist says, good morning, God. And the aversion type says, good God, morning. You know? <laughs> it's that quality of going through, through life with a chip on one shoulder, resisting, pushing it away. Whole personality can come. Or the delusion type. Again, the strategy that we congeal, that we solidify, of denial, of doubt, of not knowing, of being spaced out, of bumping into things, of not wanting to look because it's too difficult or painful. There's a story of Whistler, the great American painter, he actually enrolled at West Point at one point early in his career to um, go to school there. And he was taking an engineering course, and the instructor asked him to draw a picture of a particular a bridge for this river. So he drew a beautiful stone kind of rounded bridge crossing the stream and put two children fishing from this side of it. The instructor said, get those children off the bridge. So he drew it again, that bridge, and he put the children on the side of the stream fishing. <laughs> and, you know, the officer said, get those children out of the picture. So the last picture he drew had two little gravestones by the side of the river. <laughs> it's a true story. And it happens. We, like Whistler, if he had gone through, he quit West Point after that. But a lot of us don't quit West Point in some way. And we lose, year by year, a sense of who we are and what's really alive in ourselves. And we live in denial and doubt and confusion. And that becomes our way. In the Buddhist psychology, it's said that you can tell a little bit of your temperament by how you enter the room. The greed type enters the room, you know, a party or something, and looks to see what they like. Oh, there's good food, or somebody who's attractive I'd like to meet, or I like the furnishings. The aversion type enters the room and sees what's wrong with it. It's too crowded. I don't like the way these people are dressed, the wrong kind of food. The deluded type walks in and doesn't know where to go and what they're doing there and who to talk to and is kind of confused about it. Or the way you eat. The greed type eats either quite daintily and delicately or greedily, just you know, filling themselves. And The deluded type is very critical of the food and doesn't like... Uh, you know, how it's prepared and eats hastily and tries to get done. And the, the deluded type drips it down the front and 
makes a mess of themselves. So these are some of the things one sees in the strategies of personality. And at times it then can seem painful. Self-knowledge, someone wrote on the blackboard of our first three-month retreat, self-knowledge is bad news. So I read you part two of our story. So the parrot gave her message to the merchant. Remember her message? Tell the parrots in India about my cage. And when he reached India after his business, he saw a field full of parrots. He stopped and called out what she had told him. One of the nearest parrots shivered and stiffened and fell down dead. The merchant thought, oh, this one is surely a relative to my parrot. I shouldn't have spoken. He finished his trading and returned home with presents for his workers. But when he got to his parrot, she demanded her gift, too. What happened when you told my story to the Indian parrots? I'm afraid to say, the merchant replied. Master, you must. Well, when I spoke your complaint to the field of chattering parrots, it broke one of their hearts. She must have been a close companion or a relative for when she heard about you, she grew quiet and trembled and died. As the caged parrot heard this, she herself quivered and sank to the floor of the cage. The merchant was a good man. He grieved deeply for his parrot. We'll leave it there for the moment. Car parrot in the cage, part two. So we see these different strategies of trying to resist or defend ourselves or grasp or deny. But there is another way, awakening to our Buddha nature. The Buddha sat under the Bodhi tree, and as Zen Master Sansanim said in a poem, once a great man sat under this tree and saw the morning star and was awakened. He absolutely believed his eyes, his ears, his nose, his tongue. The sky is blue, the earth is brown. He believed what was right in front of him. And so he became free. To sit and awaken our Buddha nature is to see what is true and awaken to that. There are the eight winds of change that one notices. Pleasure and pain, as we spoke of, they alternate. Pleasure, neutral, painful, pleasant, painful. Gain and loss. For a while there's gain and then there's loss. Fame and disrepute. Sometimes we're more famous and sometimes we're ignored. There's disrepute. Praise and blame. Have you noticed? A little praise one day and then it turns into blame. Birth and death. Pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, unpleasant, pleasant. It all changes. Sometimes there's suffering. It's true there is suffering. Anyone not yet notice that truth? So the Buddha sat and he saw this pleasure and pain and gain and loss and praise and blame and pleasant and unpleasant, that this was the nature of life. As we begin to sit, we find it's also possible, as the Buddha did, to sit and experience directly without reacting to each moment by habit, without trying to 
struggle to change yourself. You're not here to make a lot of New Year's resolutions. You don't have to do that this New Year's. Isn't that great? But rather, not, not even to try to get rid of what you see. Oh, my personality, I'd like to get rid of it. You can't get rid of your personality. It's like your body. You, you sort of were born, there you have it. The point is not to get rid of things, but to sit and see what is true. As the Buddha did, he let himself see the sorrows of the world, the pain, the suffering, the wounds, the grasping. And my teacher Ajahn Chah used to say, if you haven't really wept, you haven't really begun to meditate. In the long run, there's a very deep kind of sorrow that we must let ourselves see about ourselves and our life. Seeing our fear, our smallness, our wanting, all the different thoughts, but seeing or sensing it with the eyes of wisdom, the heart of compassion of a Buddha. And in doing so, sensing something much greater. In each moment, a presence, a connection with all things. For what we long for, what we seek, to be whole, to be connected, is always here. It's not someplace else. Eternity doesn't begin when you die. Eternity is here now. Again from Rumi. He says, Lord, the air smells good today, straight from the mysteries within the inner courts of God. A grace like new clothes thrown across the garden. Free medicine for everyone. Look, open your eyes. Face to face with the lion, I grow leonine. Walking out of the treasury building, I feel generous. Anyone still sober in this weather must be really afraid. So what we look for is here in ourselves, what we look for for so long. In any moment where there is not wanting or resisting, the key in Buddhist psychology, what moves us from grasping and fear and the sense of entanglement to the side of joy and pliancy and openness, the key is mindfulness or wakefulness. In each moment of presence, of mindfulness, there then arises naturally acceptance, openness, joy, flexibility, balance, integrity, the moment of our awareness or mindfulness dissolves boundaries. The moment we allow ourselves to recognize fear or pain or resistance and to open to it without identifying with it, without wrestling with it or trying to get rid of it or saying it's mine, there's some sense of some greater space that opens. The presence of mindfulness rests on truth. It is the opposite of delusion or denial. There are two great disappointments in life, said George Bernard Shaw. Not getting what you want and getting it. 
The presence of mindfulness is truth. The world has its sorrows. Sometimes when you get what you want, it's worse than when you didn't get what you want. It has its sorrows and it has its unbearable beauty. And they cannot be taken apart. Birth and death and joy and sorrow come together. And to be aware means that we rest in that presence. Mindfulness also rests in a kind of trust or a greatness of heart. I've read this in previous years from Martin Luther King. In the height of the civil rights marches where people were were killed and the church was bombed, He said, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. So we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your heart and conscience that we will win your freedom as well. Mindfulness grows in this trust that we have a capacity to open to life as it is. The 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows. And it's the opposite of hate then. What arises is rather an ability to see what is true, to speak what is true, to work for justice, but to not put anything or anyone out of our hearts. Thomas Merton put it this way. He said, there was a moment where it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts. You know who there is. The depths of their hearts where neither sin nor desire can reach the core of them, the person that each one is in the eyes of the divine. If only they could see themselves as they really are. If only we could see each other that way all the time, there would be no more need for war or hatred, no more cruelty or greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. So mindfulness dissolves boundaries because we say yes to this and open to a bigger space. It rests in what is true without struggle. Or it allows the struggle to be there and gets bigger than that. It rests in a greatness of heart. And as we open to the world, mindfulness can touch that longing, that insufficiency, that wanting, the whole in us that we've tried to fill from things outside for so long and allow it to open and get bigger and just to feel it until we realize that what we want, that connectedness, that wholeness, is always here. It's now, because now is all there is. It's now or never. We start simply with the breath, because the simplest thing like the breath can begin to open us to this quality of presence, of being here. The poet Kabir, 
ancient Indian poet says, Are you looking for me? I'm in the next seat. My shoulder is against yours. You will not find me in stupas or Indian shrine rooms, nor in synagogues or cathedrals, not in Catholic masses or Hindu kirtans, not in legs winding around your own neck, nor in eating nothing but vegetables. When you really look for me, you will see me instantly. You will find me in the tiniest house of time. Kabir says, student, tell me, where is the divine? It is the breath inside the breath. So this quality we begin to cultivate with our breath of just being here, not grasping or resisting or identifying, starts to open us. Alan Watts said that spiritual life should not be confused with grim duty. There's a certain sense of joy that can come as we learn this presence. One of the great differences between meditation and most of our life is that most of our life is involved in getting something or fixing something or improving something. And in meditation, the task rather is to be where we are. The few things that are similar in life are making music or dancing. The idea in making music isn't to finish a piece of music as quickly as you can and get to on to the next piece of music. Well, I'll get through Bach and then I can play Beethoven. You know, the best musicians are the fastest ones. Doesn't make sense, does it? The idea in music is to be there with the play. Or in dancing, the idea is to dance with your partner and get from here out the door to some other place and a journey. The idea in dancing is to be in harmony with what is. So Buddhist psychology speaks about the unskillful strategies, the fear, the delusion, the grasping, that come to us, the habits. And then it says there's another way, another possibility. We can discover that we don't need to grasp or believe our fear our aversion, our delusion. That the pain that we carry, and you will all touch it, the wounds of your heart, the pain of your body, that you don't have to be afraid of it, that it's part of being human, part of being alive, and that we can say yes to life as it is. This is called a kind of nirvana. Ajahn Chah, my teacher, used to say, the original heart shines like pure, clear water with the sweetest taste. When we practice, this, we discover this purity that is limitless, untouchable, beyond all opposites, and yet within us. We take refuge in the Buddha or the Dharma or the Sangha, but what is the Buddha? When we see with the eyes of wisdom, we know that the Buddha is timeless, unborn, unrelated to any body or history or image, 
The Buddha is the ground of all being, the realization of the truth of the unmoving mind. So the Buddha was not enlightened in India. In fact, he was never enlightened, was never born, and never died. This timeless Buddha is our true home, our abiding place. When we take refuge in the Buddha, all things in the world become free for us. They are our teacher, proclaiming the one true nature of life. Don't you know those moments in your life when you're in silence, or you walk in the woods, or you go in the mountains, or you sat as a child just playing for no reason at all other than the joy of that moment of playing? Those moments where you're not caught by wanting or fixing or trying to be anything else. The moments where sunlight just streams in on its own or the moments of tenderness with another person. That's that quality of presence, of opening. Even in difficulty it arises, even in great difficulty. Not so long ago, a Sangha member and a friend, a man who I love very much, died of AIDS, as many, many Sangha members and many, many beautiful young men have died. And I talked to him on the phone because he was far away in the last (coughs) bit of his life. He was in the hospital. Talked to Philip. And he'd been... I think he was in his, like, 37, 36, in his mid-30s. And he got sicker and sicker. He had two kinds of cancers and various kinds of infections. And his body was bloated. He'd gone from 125 pounds to 225 pounds because his kidneys stopped working. It was just filled with water. He was lying there. And we talked on the day that he died, that morning, on the phone. And we breathed together on the phone. I said, he couldn't talk very well. I said, Philip, let's just breathe together. Ah, we just breathed for a while, and then I would chant to him, do a series of chanting, and breathe some more. And then I talked to him. I said, Philip, how's your body? Is there a lot of pain? And he'd say, he could hardly talk. Oh, a lot of pain. His tongue was all swollen up. I said, is it okay? Yeah, it's okay. All right. Said, Philip, you know, your body is rotting underneath you. It was. It was just falling apart. But that's not who you are. Let yourself be at peace. It was a very beautiful spirit in this man. A lot of humor and joy in his life. I said, Philip, be bigger than your body. You are. Let yourself rest. Let yourself rest in that peacefulness of your true nature. And then we breathed together some more, and we chanted. And even in that pain and that difficulty, he found that place that was peaceful and true. And he died in a very graceful way, a gracious way, later that day. Like Suzuki Roshi, Zen master, said when he called his students together, dying of cancer, he said, if when I die, if I suffer, that's all right, you know. That's just suffering Buddha. Like Sun Buddha, Moon Buddha, 
happy Buddha, sad Buddha. It's just part of our life. No confusion in it. This opening of the great heart of the Buddha, the mind of the Buddha, to what is true just now, stepping out of grasping and resisting, is that possibility of freedom. Now, it's not so easy. You could see today, is it? Here we are just one day into the retreat. Next part of the story. So what happened? The parrot heard what happened to the other parrot in India. She herself quivered and sank down to the cage floor. The merchant was a good man. He grieved deeply for his parrot, loving. Then, when the merchant threw the dead parrot out of the cage, it spread its wings and glided to a tree. Ah! Suddenly the merchant understood the mystery. Ah, sweet singer, what was in the message that taught you this trick? Oh, the parrots in India somehow told me that I was so charmed, I was so entranced by my own cage that I had to let it go to be released. The parrot told the merchant one or two more spiritual truths, then a tender goodbye. God protect you, said the merchant, as you go on your new way. I only hope that I can follow in your spirit. So there is that story of just letting go, not being entranced by our cage, not being caught by the fear and greed and pain and all that that's part of our human life. When we touch that with our heart, not judging and not identifying, but just letting that be there, then the opposite of the things that we feared arise. Contentment comes naturally. Abundance, generosity of spirit, true strength, the strength just to be. And we don't get this by earning it or becoming it, but because it is who we are, as Ajahn Chah said, it is our true nature. When we touch with presence and wholeness, our jealousy, covetousness, ambition, when we allow them and touch them, they drop away and our heart shines naturally. In fact, if you notice in your own process, the movement in Buddhist psychology from the roots of greed and fear and contraction and aggression and delusion, they become transformed by themselves through awareness. And in each difficulty, there is hidden a jewel in grasping and passion and desire. When we allow that and become not so entangled, but simply honor it as it is, it can be transformed into a love of beauty, a sense of grace that wants to fill the world with the Dharma that becomes a force of creativity and an expression of what's beautiful and harmonious. Instead of being I and mine and needy, it becomes the beauty of creativity. When we touch hatred and judgment and anger, 
with the great heart of a Buddha, when we allow that, it becomes transformed into discriminating wisdom. It's still there. We see clearly. We can speak the truth. It becomes a love of justice and a love of truth, but connected with a deep compassion. And the delusion, the spaced out, the denial, when we understand that and allow that, it too transforms on its own and becomes an all-embracing spaciousness. Many perspectives, a capacity to hold the mystery of life which all, with all its dimensions. Each of these come naturally by our opening and acceptance and presence. There's a graciousness and a dignity to this practice, a kind of ease. In awakening our Buddha nature, the image is often used of sitting like a king or a queen on your throne when you sit in meditation. To really let yourself sit and, and reclaim that right that you have to sit here on the earth as the Buddha did. And to feel all of life the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows and be present for them with your eyes open and your heart open and your being alive. It may not come at first. Probably notice that today, at least for a long time. But as we make this sacred space of our own body and heart, for the voices and the pains and the fears and the ones that say, I'm this and I'm that and I should be that and this and I hate this and I like that and do this and don't do that. As we sit as the Buddha did and let all those stories tell themselves and be at rest, we come home. In little moments, all of a sudden we realize, I'm not that. That's not who I am. And our Buddha nature starts to shine. As it says in the Tao, each separate being in the universe returns to the common source. Returning to the source is serenity. Let your heart be at peace. Watch the turmoil of beings and contemplate return. If you don't realize the source, you stumble in confusion and sorrow. When you realize where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king. Immersed in the wonder of the Tao, you can deal with whatever life brings you. And even when death comes, you can meet it because you are ready. Let's just sit for a minute.
Let there be a great sense of spaciousness. Feel your breathing, the life breath that moves in the center of this space. Thoughts and feelings, pleasant and unpleasant, arise and pass like the waves of the ocean. Let them come and go. Don't become too entranced by the cage like the parrot. Just let them come and go and rest in the present. If the waves are strong, you can notice them. Be aware of them. Let them pass away when they will. Feeling your breath in the middle. When you realize where you come from, you naturally become tolerant, disinterested, amused, kind-hearted as a grandmother, dignified as a king. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.